We would like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Preborn. When a mother meets her baby on an ultrasound and hears their heartbeat, it's a divine connection. And the majority of the time, she will choose life. But she can't do it without our help. Preborn needs us, the pro-life community, to come alongside her. One ultrasound is just $28. To donate, dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby or visit preborn.com. Jenna Ellis in the morning on American Family Radio. Jenna, first, good morning. Great to be with you, the queen of talk radio in America. The left does not want to honor our freedoms, and we have a responsibility to fight back. I love talking about the things of God because of truth and the biblical worldview. Fill that void with a vision that runs so deep that it dilutes the woke agenda. Well, thank you, Jenna. Right from the beginning, I knew you, so it's an honor to be with you, and you're doing really well. Proud of you. Former legal counsel to President Trump. Jenna Ellis. Good morning, and we are still on Washington Watch for the speaker race. So this is a repeat a little bit of January with uh, several candidates now and big names, including Jim Jordan and Steve Scalise, have now put their hat in the ring. And we'll get to more of that later on in the program. But I want to start this morning with some good news. Fifth Circuit Court rules that President Biden cannot censor speech on social media platforms. So Attorney General Andrew Bailey said on social media yesterday that we've just just obtained an injunction against the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency housed in the DHS, um, an agency that blocks uh, that blocks them from the DHS from violating the First Amendment rights of millions of Americans. The order also applies to the White House, the Surgeon General, the CDC, and the FBI. So this is a great addition to the court order that blocked the Biden administration from silencing disfavored viewpoints. So Attorney General Andrew Bailey of the great state of Missouri joins me now. So good morning, sir. And you just keep racking up the wins for the First Amendment. So congrats. And uh, what's going on with uh, this new uh, this this new injunction? Well, thanks for having me on. Always great to talk to you. And yeah, but it's the score right now is Missouri three, Biden zero. And we are going to keep racking up wins because the right to free speech is worth fighting for. It's a cornerstone of our democratic republic. And it's under attack. It's under attack by the D.C. swamp rats who are gnawing away at our freedom. And it started with the deep state in 2020 when the the FBI suppressed the Hunter Biden laptop story with the assistance of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, CISA. And so those two agencies colluded together and coerced big tech into suppressing the Hunter Biden laptop story. That's election interference. That's information that Americans needed to have to make decisions at the ballot box. And they were deprived of that information by federal officials in the deep state swamp. Now, moving forward, once President Biden took over, uh, he empowered the D.C. swamp to further coerce and collude with big tech to suppress exclusively conservative voices on big tech social media platforms. Remember those algorithms that caused people to be deplatformed or kicked off of Twitter, kicked off of Facebook or de-emphasized? Those security algorithms were changed at the demand of CISA. CISA was the primary facilitator of censorship demands from the federal government, from the FBI, to big tech social media. The censorship enterprise grew so quickly and so broad that the the federal government had to develop a new bureaucratic structure to do it, and CISA was the nerve center. 
And so it is a great day for freedom-loving people in the United States of America, anyone that enjoys the right to free speech, because we extended that wall of separation between tech and state to also protect us from CISA. And this is an amazing uh, win for the First Amendment. And so uh, for CISA, I mean, this this agency that I think probably a lot of uh, people haven't heard of, I mean, certainly the Department of Homeland Security, but this agency that's housed within that, um, w- were they developed simply because of social media censorship or do they actually have any other sort of legitimate functionality? Well, that's a great question. And let, let's take one step back. Department of Homeland Security, I mean, this is an organization, this is an agency that was developed in the way, created in the wake of 9-11 to protect us from foreign attack. And yet here, it's been weaponized to attack Americans' constitutional rights. We're paying the federal government to silence our speech. It's absolutely ridiculous, uncalled for, unprecedented in the history of this nation. And if you, you drill down, CISA is within the Department of Homeland Security. CISA, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, is intended to protect computer databases and bridges. But the director of CISA has said, well, there's also cognitive infrastructure. Now, I will submit to you that on his most creative day, George Orwell could never have come up with something so pernicious evil, illegal, as the idea that CISA, designed to protect computer databases and bridges, would be allowed to control what we say and what we think through neurological infrastructure. There's no such thing, and they're not empowered to do it. It undermines the rule of law. It's a weaponization of of the administrative state against Americans, and Americans are hurting. Look, the censorship was not a one-time thing. It wasn't just, oh, well, the Hunter Biden laptop story, that's over now, or, oh, it was COVID issues, that's over now. What the court found is that the harm is ongoing, because those people that saw the censorship happening back in 2020, 2021, are now self-censoring to avoid being deplatformed and kicked off the big tech social media companies. And so the self-censoring harm is ongoing, and it's not just the speakers that were harmed, it's the listeners. And so we're going to continue to fight. We're not going to let Joe Biden destroy free speech in America. We're not going to let him use CISA to do it. Yeah, this is really incredible. I'm talking with Attorney General Andrew Bailey out of the great state of Missouri. And, you know, it, it does seem entirely Orwellian and like a, a futuristic concept of mind control and of, you know, these creative terms that are uh, that are trying to use infrastructure security to then censor Americans. So what is the practical effect of the court order from the Fifth Circuit? Will this force social media platforms to change their algorithms to modify or to simply not collude with the Biden administration in terms of what they are deplatforming or the visibility reduction that we've heard so much about from Elon Musk? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It's going to eliminate the federal government's role in targeting free speech for censorship on big tech social media platforms. It was illegal to do that. But the other problem is the, the censorship enterprise only targeted one viewpoint. Anyone that dissented with Joe Biden, anyone that disagreed with Joe Biden. And so it was viewpoint discrimination, but it was also all truthful speech. Everything that was, was ended up being suppressed was true. So, again, Americans were harmed because we were deprived of information upon which to have, make reasonable decisions. So, uh, yeah, at the end of the day, this is a huge win. We're going to continue to build the wall of separation between tech and state. What, this case is all about the fact that the government can't outsource through a third party what would be illegal for the government to do directly. And I think that speaks to your point.
Yeah. And so how have uh, big tech companies, if they have reacted to this, I mean, were there um, any sort of amicus briefs that were filed from you know some of these big tech companies? I mean, we know that Elon Musk has said that he's a free speech absolutist and has tried to create um, you know a better environment on X, formerly known as Twitter. But, you know, Mark Zuckerberg and, and some of these others uh, really haven't come out in favor of free speech. So where do they stand on some of these rulings? And are are there any potential loopholes that you see that they could kind of try to go around this and do the bidding of the Biden administration anyway, even if not directly taking those type of orders? Because, I mean, we all know what conservative versus uh, Biden administration favored content is. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you're right. And look, at the end of the day, big tech is not friendly to conservatives, right? I mean, thank goodness Elon Musk purchased X, or formerly known as Twitter, and has opened the Twitter file so we can see how bad it really was. And so, you know, but for Missouri v. Biden and Elon Musk buying Twitter, the American public may never have known about this vast censorship enterprise. And so this is a groundbreaking and important case. The work that Elon Musk is doing is important. But, yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, the other big tech social media platforms have not exactly been friendly to this effort to crack it open, look inside. I mean, it's a monopoly. It's a monopoly created by the government because of the misinterpretation of Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. They use it as both a sword and a shield. And that is, it's because of Section 230 of the CDA that President Biden was able to so capture, collude, and coerce with big tech social media. He had a captive audience. It was a finite number of companies he had to force, and they were dependent on him not tinkering with Section 230 of the CDA. So the, that is the source of the problem. Big tech is not our friend. They were, uh, you know, they acquiesced to the demands for government censorship or ideologically opposed to the voices they, that they are censoring. But this was still at the government's demand. And look, the, the harm is not over yet. Again, as I've demonstrated, the harm is ongoing because of the self-censoring. But the wall of separation between tech and state as part of this in, nationwide injunction applies to the White House, the FBI, the CDC, the Surgeon General, and now CISA. But we've only scratched the surface. We've only done preliminary discovery to get a preliminary injunction. We're going to get into the merits discovery and root out this vast censorship enterprise. We're going to hunt down every single D.C. swamp rat that is going to crawl out of the administrative state sewer and gnaw away at our First Amendment protections. And we're going to erect the wall of separation between them and big tech as well because we know that it has expanded and it has grown. COVID was the Trojan horse that got the enemy behind the gates. There are new agencies, new operatives that are continuing to coerce and collude with big tech social media. We've got to find it and put a stop to it. So this is just, again, preliminary discovery to get preliminary injunction. I think that right now the federal government is thinking about how they're going to work around it by outsourcing the censorship to other agencies. Which, of course, the Biden administration um, is not just going to take this and say, oh, yeah, you're right. Um, the First Amendment does exist. And we've been uh, com- completely violating that. So, yeah, we're sorry and we'll stop doing that. I mean, they'll find some of these other creative solutions. And so it's it's really great that you're continuing to pursue this and hopefully get um, some really good judicial rulings in place. Because, as you mentioned, this is just um, a preliminary order. So what are the next steps in terms of uh, where this case is going on the merits and ultimately what you would like to see as a result of this really, really important case. And I think right now, this is the most important case in the country on a variety of reasons from a constitutional standpoint, um, just in terms of protecting basic freedom and liberties from government interference, but also because uh, social media has become the public square. And we want to be able to make informed decisions on our elections, but also have the right to participate in discussions, ask questions, put out our viewpoints um, on all of these different platform. So, I mean, for a, a lot of reasons, this really is the most important case in the country ongoing right now. 
Well, and Jenna, we're moving into an election cycle. I mean, next year we'll be back in an election cycle. The Department of Justice and the FBI and CISA have already proven a commitment to suppressing any uh, information that would be uh, harmful to their chosen candidate. And so that's election interference. What are they going to do next? I mean, again, with that wall of separation between tech and state is so important as we move into next year's election cycle, we're going to keep fighting. But I think next steps, you know, the there is a the, the nationwide injunction goes into effect 10 days after the court issued its order. So the clock is ticking right now. You know, our anticipation is the Department of Justice will appeal, as you stated. They are committed to this to censoring American voices. They're committed to future violations of the right to free speech. They can't allow free, fair, and open debate because they lose on the merits. They can't debate, so they had to silence the other side, and that's what they're doing. That's what they're committed to. So they'll appeal. We'll be up to the United States Supreme Court. You know, hopefully we can have oral argument at the Supreme Court before the end of the year or uh, shortly thereafter because it is imperative that we get this across the finish line and make sure that injunction is in place. Now, once the injunction is in place, we're going to proceed to merits discovery. And, again, we're going to root out the vast censorship enterprise and hold wrongdoers accountable. We can do that through the discovery process. But I think Congress has a role to play here, too. You know, I would support Congress appointing an inspector general to monitor compliance with the court order. Certainly, uh, uh, Congressman Gordon and my predecessor, Senator Eric Schmidt, have have, uh, introduced legislation and, and held hearings exposing uh, this for what it is, exposing this pernicious censorship enterprise, and certainly they've got creative ways to hold wrongdoers accountable. I'm not sure why we're paying the government to violate our constitutional right to free speech. So I think there's actions that can take in, be taken on an appropriations front there, and we're going to keep fighting. And at the end of the day, you know, like I said, we, we will be in the highest court of land, and we're going to fight to build that wall of separation between tech and state to protect our rights. And Attorney General Andrew Bailey makes some really excellent points about uh, Congress as well. And hopefully with a new speaker that will be more aggressive in pursuing a truly conservative agenda uh, will be voted in in the next you know, week or several weeks. And, you know, you also mentioned the uh, the ongoing harm of self-censorship. And in just about the last minute I have with you, what would be your um, general advice to people listening to not participate in that ongoing harm? I mean, we can opt out and not have our voices silenced by ourselves in fear. Yeah, that's right. Well, first of all, I would not, uh, I would not cower in fear of the Orwellian censorship enterprise. We are allowed to say what we please. If the government doesn't like what we're saying, they can offer counter speech, but they can't silence our speech. That's an American history and heritage legacy of freedom that we inherited from our founding fathers, and it's worth standing up and fighting for. There are alternative uh, sites don't fall within the, the big tech monopoly uh, that we can use uh, to have our voices heard. But also, I would not cower in fear on big tech. Say as you please, hear as you please. Uh, the, the First Amendment's worth fighting for. And, you know, it, it, we're going to get this turned around. We're going to get this fixed because we're not going to let Joe Biden destroy free speech in America. Amen to that. And we have to continue to participate in our American experiment ourselves by understanding our constitutionally protected rights and exercising them and ensuring that we not only participate in the discussions, ask questions, but also hear and seek out the truth. So Attorney General Andrew Bailey, um, again, congratulations on being 3-0. and And I'm looking forward to, you know, you by the time you're done with your tenure of SAG being like 1,500-0 and against Joe Biden. So we're praying for you. And uh, Godspeed to you. Looking forward to having you back on soon. So we'll be right back with more here on Jenna Ellis in the morning.
Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio. Well, this just in, Governor Ron DeSantis pulls ahead of fellow GOP contenders in the student Students for Life Action September political pulse poll by 13%. Their social media account posted this on X when asked who they would vote for in the 2024 Republican U.S. presidential primary. Uh, if that were today, 42% of the pro-life generation reported they would support Ron DeSantis, followed by former President Trump at 29% and then Nikki Haley at 6%. Student for Life Action also goes on to say these results show a 21% increase for Governor Ron DeSantis and a 20% drop for President Donald Trump in the last month. This follows the recent comments made by former President Trump that he believed Florida's uh, Heartbeat Abortion Prevention Act was a quote-unquote terrible mistake. Students for Action also says, reminder for candidates, the youth vote is turning out historically high numbers at the polls and the Hashtag ProLifeGen is looking for pro-life champions to support, especially for the president of the United States. So uh, uh, Students for Life Action has been calling on the 2024 presidential candidates to sign our Protecting Heartbeats pledge. So joining me now to discuss this and more is Robert Salvador, who is the CEO of a big tech company and also uh, supporting Governor DeSantis for president. So, Robert, um, this poll, I think, really showed that the pro-life agenda is is a high priority for conservatives, but especially young conservatives. And I think um, that, you know, regardless of, of the, the candidates themselves, I think just the fact that they are so focused on pro-life being an important priority is very encouraging. Yeah, well, it's great to be back on, Jenna, and thanks for having me. Um, I think you're spot on. Um, you're seeing the impact of, you know, what former President Trump said a couple weeks ago about, you know, Florida's Heartbeat Protection Act being a terrible thing. You know, for conservatives, there is no other policy that is probably more deep-rooted in their hearts and in their minds and in what their beliefs, you know, what their beliefs are, then their pro-life stance. It's not just some, you know, policy that they could flip-flop on one day. You know, this is something that is at the heart of people's morals and what they believe in. So, yeah, I think you are seeing the impact of that. I think a lot of people are seeing that, you know, Governor DeSantis believes very much, you know, in his in pro-life, and he's unapologetic about that. So I think you're seeing a generation of younger people realizing that the future they're heading towards doesn't seem to be a good one. And, you know, when people are just willing to flip-flop on an issue like this, I think it says a lot about them as a whole. You know, former President Trump just seems to flip-flop when is, you know, convenient for him. So um, it's really encouraging to see some of these polls, like the one that came out um, that you were just talking about, because... It's really easy for, you know, there's a lot of manipulation of the mainstream media polls and, of you know, pollsters that are hired by the campaigns. But it's more difficult to manipulate these random sample sets that you see around the country. Um, I think you saw it was the Dallas Republicans or another young Republican group that had a similar vote like that um, that put Ron DeSantis at the front of the pack. So, yeah, to your point, Jenna, I think, you know, pro-life is going to be a huge issue in this election. And Governor DeSantis is showing so many more people around the country what many of us already know about him in Florida, um, which is that he not only delivers, but he stands by what he believes in and doesn't flip-flop on it. 
Yeah, and uh, Robert Salvador, I think you make a really excellent point that, you know, pro-life is not one of these issues that uh, we can ever compromise on because this is at the heart of the Christian faith, the Christian worldview, and the biblical worldview in terms of uh, policy and what is legitimate uh, for government and to preserve and protect the rights of every human being made in the image of God, uh, but especially the right to life uh, that is the foundational right without which we can't exercise any of our other rights. That can't be compromised on. And it's not a matter of saying, well, isn't, you know, some people would say, well, isn't a heartbeat bill compromising? Well, that's, um, that would just be an an incremental win toward an overall goal of eradicating abortion throughout the country. And we still need to continue to make it unthinkable, not just unlawful and uh, illegal. And so I've been very, um, grateful for Governor DeSantis leaning into this issue and pushing back against uh, former President Trump by saying, you know, no, this is a great uh, thing that he was very proud to sign the heartbeat legislation. Governor Reynolds also said the same thing. Uh, Brian Kemp, Governor Kemp out of Georgia also said the same thing. So um, I think that this is an issue that isn't going away. And so you also make a really great point that um, these types of polls that aren't uh, that aren't paid for. They're not um, as easily manipulated as some of these other polls that we see that have been touted by various campaigns, um, you know, depending on the sample set. And, and we could go into all of that. Uh, and that's a lot of the reason I don't trust those types of polls. Um, so what does it say to you that there are there have been so many of these um these other polls among specifically young Republicans that show Governor DeSantis a really I mean, into double digit lead. Yeah, well, you know, I think there are some indicators that are more accurate than others. You know, like you said, these national polls can easily be faked. You know, it depends who's paying for them. It depends on the sample size, you know, in technology. National polling is something that we call an NP hard problem. Meaning, you know, simply said, it's almost impossible to figure out. Even the most advanced computers in the world can't figure out these numbers because it's such a large data set. It's impossible to predict. So what you can look at is follow the money, like you can look at in other places in life. You know, what we had heard over the last month from, you know, unfortunately what's become a basement campaign from the Trump campaign is that, oh, Ron DeSantis is somehow running out of money and, um, you know, that's going to be the end of his campaign. But like pretty much everything else we've seen lately, lately that ended up not being true. Um, Governor DeSantis brought in, you know, between 10 and 15 million for the campaign and a reported additional 10 to 15 million for the PAC. Um, so, you know, I think you're seeing what many and what the campaign has been saying would happen, which is as we get closer to Iowa, as more people get to see the governor, you know, as the, the name brand of Donald Trump, just having a big name becomes less important. And people start to pay more attention to the issues, to things like pro-life, like you just said, Jenna. More and more people are realizing what we've realized in Florida for a while, which is that, you know, again, Governor DeSantis not only stands for great conservative values, he's probably, you know, overall the best conservative we've had since Reagan, but he gets these things done as well. And I think that's a theme that's really starting to emerge. And what young people, younger people like me, um, are looking at is, hey, I've heard these politicians for years make all these promises, right? Donald Trump was going to build the wall. He was going to end the debt. He was going to, you know, stop the deep state. And even before him, you know, the other night I was watching the 2008 uh, Republican primary, and it was funny because you heard many of the same issues back then that everyone's still talking about now. 
So I think the what you're seeing from Governor DeSantis actually delivering these results in Florida in one of the biggest states, one of the most relevant states in the country, he's actually visibly doing these things. I think more voters are starting to see that combination of principle and results are what they want. And this media circus just kind of needs to end, you know, whether it's, you know, around Trump himself or whether it's around, you know, uh, other Trump surrogates like, you know, Matt Gates and what we have going on with this whole speaker issue now. People are seeing that Ron DeSantis is probably the best conservative we've had since Reagan and is a better choice for our party and for the country. And uh, Robert Salvador, who is a uh, CEO of a big tech company in uh, based in Florida and obviously a supporter of Governor DeSantis for president, um, you know, you mentioned also how people are supporting Governor DeSantis more when they see him more um, in the media and when they get to know more of his record. And um, and I think that this contrast between red states versus blue states and how governors uh, and the, the distinctions, how they've run their states like Governor DeSantis versus versus Governor Gavin Newsom, for example, is going to be very clearly on display when the two of them debate. And uh, and I think that's going to be on November 29th, uh, that Wednesday. And um, I I am really looking forward to this debate because um, this is going to be a very clear clash between probably the most popular Democrat governor in the country and the most popular Republican governor in the country. And we can see the distinctions and the differences between just how their states not only are run, but um, just the ongoing, whether it's homelessness, crime, um, people who are moving from California to Florida. I mean, it's going to be fascinating to see how Governor Newsom attempts to defend the actions in his own state. And I think that this debate is actually going to be better overall for Republicans in general, but specifically Governor DeSantis, um, more so than the GOP primary debate last week, which I just really didn't think was uh, helpful for anyone overall. Yeah, that's a great point. I think the debate between Governor DeSantis and Governor Newsom is one of the most exciting things um, about this entire election cycle. I think first and foremost, before you get into the comparisons between red and blue states, I think Americans as a whole should be excited about this because it gives us an opportunity to see what the country can be like with a new generation leading us. Instead of the 80-plus-year-olds, 80-plus-year-olds, you know, like Joe Biden and Donald Trump and, you know, Mitch McConnell and many of these others, this will give the American people the chance to see, okay, what do some newer views have to offer? Um, so, you know, the DeSantis, Gavin Newsom thing, I think, really will be a positive debate for the entire country. Now, getting to the comparison, like you said, between red and blue states, I, I don't think it could be more obvious, right? You see decline in California. You see success in Florida. You know, if you look at Florida's economy versus California, Florida's got one of the best, you know, economies in the country. If you look at, you know, what's happening with woke indoctrination in schools and, you know, not just that, you know, obviously that's one of the terrible things that's happening and Governor DeSantis has protected children. But those moral issues go right along kind of with the pro-life issues that you mentioned earlier. Um, so it's a really good opportunity for people to see how the leadership of Governor DeSantis has people voting with their feet. You know, as you mentioned, more people move to Florida than any other state. I just saw an Axios uh, article today saying, uh, a brand new one saying, both Florida and Tampa Bay, or uh, within Florida, uh, benefited the most of any other place in the country of population growth and business growth. So I think that debate is going to be really exciting. And I think it's also an opportunity for um, 
you know, to your point, to see what's available outside of the RNC debate. You know, I agree with you. It has really become disappointing what's happening over there. I think many people know uh, that this is a two-man race between DeSantis and Trump. And I'm all for, you know, other candidates and hearing them and making sure that the American people, you know, get to hear from the candidates they want in our, you know, that's part of our, of the republic we live in. But there also comes a point where having eight or nine people on that stage um, just isn't a reflection of what's actually happening um, for the American people and, and the candidates that the American people are actually getting behind. So the Newsom DeSantis debate, I think, will be a great opportunity to uh, get rid of the real housewives of uh, the debates that we've been seeing lately and hear a debate between Governor DeSantis and Governor Newsom on real issues and on how they plan to take their policies that they're currently leading in their state and how they would bring that to the White House and you know, bring that to help the American people and stop this American decline. Yeah, and, and I'm really looking forward to this as well. And I hope that because it'll only be two men up there that they will be, be able to have a lot more um, cross interaction and, you know, not just be cut off after a two minute response. And then the moderator saying, OK, well, we need to move to top uh, to a next topic and next topic and, you know, get all of their talking points in instead of allowing the American public to actually genuinely hear from each of the candidates. And my frustration with the current debate format is you know, this doesn't reflect at all anything like what uh, we have seen throughout American history like with um, the original Lincoln-Douglas debates and, you know, having two guys stand up there for literally hours and just go back and forth respectfully debating policy and, and understanding where they're coming from. I don't think this really serves a great purpose anymore um, other than getting a couple of sound bites that then, um, you know, the media and, and including me on the show, you know, we can talk about it after the fact. But um, for the people who actually want to hear from the candidates themselves, it almost comes across as just another, you know, four minute uh, media hit on um, on a mainstream network. And so hopefully um, the moderator in this case, uh, Sean Hannity, will allow the candidates not to talk over each other, but to actually engage each other and to see that clear contrast between the Democrat agenda which is a pro state funded abortion on demand for literally any reason up until even post birth and moments after birth versus uh, protecting life at its very conception. I mean, just that one issue, there is such a clear contrast and everything else that uh, conservatives and faith based voters value will be very much, I think, on display. So um, in just the last like two minutes that I have with you, uh, Robert Salvador, and I really appreciate your time this morning. Um, you mentioned the speaker's race at all, uh, as well. And um, there have been a lot of different discussion points on, you know, this being kind of uh, chaotic for the GOP. And then others like Representative Bob Good, who joined me yesterday, said, you know, we were just at the point where um, the Republican coalition could not put up with the status quo. We need to have a better fighter than Kevin McCarthy so that we can get our agenda uh, pushed through and we can have a solid uh, leader. So what are your thoughts overall just on uh, the speaker debate? Sure. So, you know, I am no fan of the establishment uh, more than the next person, right? And, and I, I don't think anyone doubts that, um, you know, McCarthy was part of the establishment. However, you know, we have to remember, why did we even put him in 10 months ago if we were just going to go into this circus now? I know that, you know, some in, in Congress will say they were holding him accountable and whatnot, but McCarthy is the same person now that he was 10 months ago. So my issue with it is this has created another circus this is making Republicans really look embarrassing across the board, um, you know, getting rid of a sitting speaker like this. You know, when we just took the House back and, you know, didn't have a red wave and really barely took the House back. Um, and so 
without a better plan, you know, they say the grass isn't always greener. You know, what was the, the grass's greener plan here? We don't even know yet. Um, and so while I, I do think there's good options, and again, I don't, I'm no fan of McCarthy and, and his, you know, ties to the establishment or whatever you want to call it. Um, I just, it seems like this is just another circus without results that has become the norm for the Trump team and his, his surrogates around him, you know, like Matt Gates, who, who I do think, um, you know, does a great job in general. But so, so I'm trying to hold judgment to see until we see what happens with this new speaker. But I think, you know, this is a serious time and we need serious people. And Absolutely. making Republicans look even worse um, than we have lately, I'm just not sure what's the best idea. So, Well, I hope uh, we get a really good speaker in and quickly and we can get on with the business of governing and getting the conservative agenda put through. So, Robert Salvador, really appreciate your opinions. We'll be right back with more here on Jenna Ellis in the morning. We'd like to thank our sponsors, including Preborn. Preborn has rescued over 200,000 babies from abortion, and every day their network clinics rescue 200 babies' lives. Will you join Preborn in loving and supporting young moms in crisis? Save a life today. Go to preborn.com. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio. Welcome back. And we are talking about the speaker race now uh, to install a new Speaker of the House. And after this historic vote in Washington, D.C., a couple of days ago that ousted Speaker Kevin McCarthy and I think uh, took the nation really by surprise. Uh, And so Speaker McCarthy, after about nine months, has lost his speakership and there are a, a, kind of some two two perspectives um, or two, uh, probably more than that, but two real bodies of thought with this. One is that this is a great move. Uh, Kevin McCarthy wasn't a great leader out of Washington. He didn't really uh, get the conservative agenda prioritized and was compromising too much, even with a very slim majority in Congress. And then the other side says, well, no, this is putting us into chaos. And now, uh, because no business can be conducted on the House floor, until uh, the the members elect a new Speaker of the House, then this is just uh, putting Washington, D.C. into chaos that's really unnecessary. Was McCarthy really uh, that ineffective that these members who were upset with him couldn't have just worked with him and moving forward? So um, it'll be very interesting to see who they end up electing. And, of course, in uh, Article 1, Section 2.5, is the constitutional mandate for an officer of the Speaker. And it does not require, the Constitution does not require that the Speaker be a member of the House of Representatives. So there has been some speculation that nominations from outside of the members uh, may be forthcoming, including even former President Donald Trump. Uh, And he was, of course, nominated and received a couple of votes, um, not anything really serious, uh, even during those 15 rounds back in January. So uh, joining me now to discuss all of this and where we go from here is Jim Nels, who is a consultant based in Chicago. Illinois and has become a prolific writer and we're going to talk about his uh, new new and latest piece in Fox News in just a moment. Um, But Jim, this is really interesting to me as well, um, particularly because if we get, say, a Jim Jordan or a Steve Scalise or a Mike Johnson or someone who is just a an ardent, passionate conservative quickly uh, in the House, I think that will justify Matt Gates and the other members uh, who voted 
along with all of the Democrats to oust McCarthy, I think that will justify their move if we get someone as conservative as, say, Jim Jordan in the speakership. No, I agree with you 100 percent. I fall into the camp of I think this was a good thing. And I would love to see Jim Jordan uh, take the gavel. Although I've got to admit, having President Trump as the Speaker of the House even for six (laughs) months would be great just for the entertainment value. But I'm not sure how much work we would get done for the people of the United States. But going, going back to the decision that they made, I mean, I was never a fan of Kevin McCarthy. I think that the reason he, he got that role in the first place it was he was next in line of succession. And that's kind of how they've been treating this thing. He made a bunch of agreements to uh, receive the gavel. He didn't follow through with them. He made more deals with Biden than he did with people like Matt Gates. And uh, eventually Matt Gates had the courage or the, the ignorance, whichever way you want to put it, to say, you know what, enough's enough. He's not holding up his end of the bargain, and I'm going to take the slings and arrows and, and pull the trigger, and he had enough people to work with him to do it. Um, I do also think, though, that if you look at what Congress did as soon as they, they, they had the motion to, to vacate the chair, they went on a, week, a week's recess. And, Jenna, they don't have to stop the people's business. Every subcommittee and every committee could still meet. They just can't do business on the floor of the House. So they could have continued with the impeachment inquiry. They could continue with every single um, one of their committees, and they chose to go home and, and cry about what happened before coming back next week to start the people's business. If they really cared, they would have stayed in session, and we'd already have a new Speaker of the House. Yeah, that's a great point. And uh, the Speaker Pro Tem, who was appointed by McCarthy, uh, perhaps was kind of telling everyone, as as my mom would always say growing up, you know, you're you're taking your toys and going home. (laughs) You're the the kids and the toddlers who are, um, you know, who are fighting and then they can't resolve their issues. So they take their toys and go home. And uh, and and so I don't think that that spoke well for the establishment wing that uh, did not like to see the ousting of McCarthy. But it honestly surprised me, Jim Nels, that uh, Jim Jordan ended up throwing his hat in the ring, and I was um, you know, speaking to some of the members of his team yesterday, and, and um, I believe that he will join us here on the program on Monday, and we'll look forward to that, talking about the speakership and that race. Um, but he was very clear back when McCarthy was running that he was not interested in that. He wanted to uh, simply be part of the Judiciary Committee. Um, he's the chairman of that committee. And to see his uh, his letter now saying that you know he, he feels that this is something that he needs to do and stand up and take that leadership role, I think is a great thing. Um, I would fully uh, support him for speaker. I think we have a wide bench, um, and that's a good thing, that competition is great, and we have um, several great candidates to pull from. But specifically about uh, Jim Jordan, I think a lot of Americans um, and conservatives would love to see him in the Speaker of the House role. And so did it surprise you as well that um, he very quickly threw his hat in the ring? Not overly surprised. I think, again, going back to uh, January when McCarthy was um, put in place, I think Jordan stayed out of it in deference to, again, the the right to ascend to the throne, if you will. And he didn't want to rock the boat. But once the boat, you know, not only got rocked, but tipped over, Jordan says, "Okay, it's time to pick up the mantle and and, and lead. And that's what leaders do. And so I'm really glad to see him throw us out in the ring. I I would much prefer him over, say, Steve Scalise or any of the other folks. But I think Jordan would actually broker deals with the uh, the maggot um, wing of the of the of the house as well as with the more moderate wings and I think he's not going to say that he'll do things and then not follow through to get them done so I'd really love to see that happen and uh, I will definitely be tuning in on Monday to hear you interview him 
Yeah, well, I mean, I'm really looking forward to seeing what the next speaker uh, gets done. And hopefully uh, it will be someone that is more uh, hard right and is pushing the conservative agenda. But, you know, it's going to take some some compromise to get to that point among Republicans. Um, and with that very slim majority, I don't think that any of the Democrats are going to vote for a Jim Jordan or a Steve Scalise. Um, so it's going to be very no. fascinating to see uh, where this this leads, how many rounds this takes how long this takes but you know if we end up in a brief government shutdown you know i'm okay with that actually i mean to to say you know we don't need as many people um in washington (laughs) that are that are working to censor americans for example and uh you know this this uh weaponized doj and um and weaponized irs and weaponized uh dhs and all weaponized fbi all of these three-letter agencies it's really okay that they're not going to be funded for a little while if that happens and uh, this kind of goes into yeah, go ahead. No, I, I agree. And, you know, the, the misinformation that gets spread about this, I was in the military during several government shutdowns. And guess what? I never did not get paid. No one in the government does not get paid when there's a government shutdown. They shut down on the first after the checks go out, and they rarely last more than a one pay cycle. So everyone gets paid. What happens is that those in power weaponize the shutdown. Obama did this uh, during the shutdowns where he closed all the national parks as, in a way to pressure people to come back and uh, give them what he wanted. But people still get paid. Back, they always vote in back pay for these folks as well. So things will still happen. The government will still run. Hopefully they just can't do as much damage. So I think a shutdown is not necessarily a bad thing. And the one thing that we should have done is let it shut down this uh, last week because for the first time, polls were showing that people were going to blame the Democrats and the president for that, not Republicans. And that's a flip from every other shutdown that's happened in recent memory. Yeah, and that's a great point, Jim Nels, that uh, that was really, I think, with the straw that broke the camel's back, uh, proverbially speaking, with the Republicans that voted to oust McCarthy because he was the leader of that compromise and that 45-day continuing resolution. And so uh, looking forward to having someone hopefully in the speaker's role that won't compromise on things that uh, they don't have to and to hold the Democrats' feet to the fire and to say, you know, we really want to push through the concerns conservative agenda and blaming um, the White House and and looking at uh, what the Biden administration continues to do in terms of um, attacking our constitutionally protected rights. This goes right into your opinion piece that is titled Biden's war on everything Elon Musk. The full force of the government is looking at Musk to destroy him and his companies. Uh, And this is in Fox News by Jim Nels, who is joining me now as my guest. And you make the point that um, Elon Musk was, was a darling of the left and um, almost of the cultural elite. And yet now that he has come out in favor of free speech, um, is is in favor of a more uh, moderate, maybe even a little bit conservative leaning policy when it comes to not just social media, but other things, um, he has become a target of a weaponized government like so many other Americans, including President Trump, who actually stood against the elites in Washington with his policy. And so this is just one more example of how the uh, Biden White House is the enemy of the American people. And instead of focusing so much on the GOP infighting, looking at what's actually going on in the Biden administration in terms of a fundamentally anti-constitution, anti-rights uh, for all Americans uh, agenda that's going on in Washington, I think we really need to focus on that. So um, so your piece makes that point. And uh, why did you choose to focus specifically on Elon Musk? 
Well, it's interesting, right? Because, you know, first of all, I wish I had all of Elon Musk's troubles because I can probably deal with that as long as I was still the richest man in the world. But, <laughs> you know, it was, it was simply sitting around and, and thinking about this, and, and I didn't get it into the piece because of space constraints, but the parallels between President Trump and Elon Musk are fantastic, right? If you think about uh, President Trump before he came down the golden escalator, he was the darling of the left. He was at all the social parties. He was winning awards for his work with, with African-Americans. He was on the TV shows, on the cocktail circuit, even though he doesn't drink, right? And then as soon as he came out and started voicing his opinions, he all of a sudden became you know, a Nazi and an anti-homophobe, xenophobe, whatever phobe. And it's kind of the same for Elon Musk. As soon as he bought Twitter and said, hey, I'm going to make it about free speech, then he released the Twitter files. All of a sudden, they're coming after him. The DOJ, Department of Justice, is going after SpaceX for not hiring immigrants and asylum seekers. The DOJ is going after him for, uh, you know, Tesla. And, you know, did he get grants from Tesla and gifts from Tesla that they didn't report? I mean, even uh, Elizabeth Warren is going after him for smoking a peace pipe. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous what's <laughs> happening to the guy. And, you know, the one thing that, that people don't realize is that this is the Biden regime going after America's most successful African-American immigrants. And, you know, it's really a shame that they're weaponizing the DOJ against an African-American like this. It really bothers me. Yeah, and, and that's such a great point. And it's so, it's so clear and evident that uh, the the administration is only going after Elon Musk after he uh, changed his politics, if we want to frame it that way, or he started uh, pursuing a, a free speech agenda. He started going along with more conservative principles, and now all of a sudden he's a target. Well, you know, correlation doesn't always necessarily equal causation, but um, I think that we can all connect the dots here, at least in terms of a reasonable inference, to say that this is uh, targeting him for his political beliefs. And, um, and I find that, you know, reprehensible from a government perspective, because the government is here to preserve and protect our rights as Americans, not to target us because we have a different political view or view of anything than what is preferred by the government. So, you know, this just goes back into the whole speaker debate, Jim Nels, because we need people in Washington and also in the states, in the state and local level government as well, like what Governor DeSantis is doing in Florida, what other great Republican governors are doing around the country by saying, no, we have to use government powers for their original purpose, which is to preserve and protect the rights of Americans, not preserve and protect the power of the Washington elites. So, um, so what's the solution here? The solution comes back to what you just said. You've got to get people out to vote and vote people into office, both at the local, the state, and the federal level, who are going to do just that. Return the government to what it's supposed to be. I want the government to do really nothing more than to build roads and have a military. And other than that, get out of my life. Let us figure things out on our own. And, you know, it just goes back to Obama. I mean, Obama weaponized the IRS against the Tea Party, right? And ever since then, the Democrats have done that. So folks need to get involved. They need to fill in these, these vacancies in the Republican Party at the local level. They need to vote. They need to make sure that they're talking to their representatives, saying, this is what I want to have happen. This is what needs to have happen. Or I'm going to primary you. And folks, need, folks in Washington need to start learning that they're going to be held accountable. And I think what we saw with McCarthy is just the first step in that. 
Yeah, and, and really well said. And I think that uh, that people who are conservative, who are faith-based values voters like um, our AFR family, you know, rather than focusing so much on the infighting among the GOP and the differences that, you know, we all may have on, um, you know, who to support in terms of a primary, uh, but looking at educating ourselves and understanding what the Constitution actually says and provides for, because a lot of these agencies that we're discussing, um, you know, when you talk about just having national security in the military and protecting our borders and a couple of things, I mean, the federal government originally was not intended to have this many executive agencies that are telling the states what to do, that are uh, spying on the American people, that are infringing upon our rights, that are telling us, you know, when, where, and how we can exercise things like religious liberty, parental rights, um, pro, pro-life pro uh, agendas, you know, all of these things. And so we need to get back to understanding the limited purpose and role of government and really restraining the federal government from its overreach and its, uh, its just absolute increase of power that we've seen over the last, you know, I think especially um, 100 years and about 40 years. So um, Jim Nels, really appreciate your uh, perspective today. How can people read um, more of your articles, find you on social media? Your current piece is Biden's war on everything Elon Musk, and that is in Fox News as of yesterday. No, the best place to find me is on foxnews.com, also a contributor to the Daily Wire and uh, the Russian Examiner. And you can find me every Friday evening at uh, 8 p.m. Eastern, excuse me, 9 p.m. Eastern on Tipping Point with Sarah Kenny, where I do my weekly wrap-up called Everything is Stupid, because you know what? It really is. <laughs> that's, that's a great segment title. We might have to borrow that occasionally on this show. Well, Jim Nels, thanks so much. It's all the time we have for today on Jenna Ellis in the Morning. You can always reach me, Jenna, at AFR.net. Make it a great day for the Lord. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast may not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio. We'd like to thank our sponsors, including Preborn. Preborn has rescued over 200,000 babies from abortion, and every day their network clinics rescue 200 babies' lives. Will you join Preborn in loving and supporting young moms in crisis? Save a life today. Go to preborn.com.